Welcome to Solus Spiritus Sanctus, the Forgotten Sola podcast. I'm your host, Josh Dills. This podcast is all about the Holy Spirit. Who is He? How does He work? We'll tackle all these questions and more, so let's get started. Hey, and thank you for listening to the Forgotten Sola podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Um, If you remember from our pilot episode, I said I was going to take a much more colloquial approach this time around to the podcast. For those who who don't know what that means, it means this isn't going to be very academic uh, by and large. Now, there will be some episodes... Um, where I take a much more academic approach when we when we start discussing terms and things like that. But I want this to be a podcast that people can understand what I'm talking about that gets down where we live. Um, but there, and the reason I want to do this is I want all of my listeners to be able to clearly understand what I'm trying to communicate and get the most out of what I'm saying. Um, this episode is going to be kind of the first of what I hope to produce outside of, uh, you know, the intro and the testimonial episodes. This one really, really gets down where we live. Um, and the title of this episode actually comes from a quote that I seen on the Preaching Matters podcast Facebook page. Um, if you want to learn about preaching and why preaching truly matters, Hop on over and give them a follow and a listen um, to what they're putting out. That's my friend Alan Carr, uh, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Lenore, North Carolina. He is a dear friend. He is a mentor, and he is a help to preachers. So that is the Preaching Matters podcast. Uh, Hop on over, listen. You will not regret it. But he put this quote from C.H. Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, on his podcast page the other day, and it really, really struck home with me. Spurgeon said, and I quote, Any fool can sing in the day. It is easy to sing when we can read the notes by daylight. But the skillful singer is he who can sing when there is not a ray of light to read by. Songs in the night come only from God. They are not in the power of men. That last line again, I'm going to read that again, said songs in the night come only from God. They are not in the power of men, end quote. So that's why I titled this episode Songs in the Night. And there are several people who are what we'll call, for lack of a better term, daytime Christians. When they're in church or around other believers, they're the ones who sing the loudest, testify the most, and seem to have it all together. They are those who, as Spurgeon says, sing during the day. They're able to read emotions and read crowds as well as everyone else reads a book, and to use a phrase from my neck of the woods, they put on airs for people. How do I know this is because I was once one of those people. To put it biblically, I and the many others who were once like I was had a form of godliness but denied the truth and the power 
of a true relationship with Christ. And I'm sure many of you listening can say the same. You've probably came from that same background. Now, just about me, like most who were raised in a Christian home, um, I grew up into a head knowledge of Christ where no true conversion had taken place. I could sing, testify, and even present the gospel, but I had never gone through the night. I had never seen the horrors of tragedy or gone through the fires of suffering. I had never seen a time when the light of the cross seemed dim or walked through the loneliness of what Dean Martin Lloyd-Jones called spiritual depression. In other words, I had never taken up my cross to follow Christ. Does this sound familiar? We can go through the motions and give lip service to Christ, fooling everyone around us into thinking we are a super-Christian. The problem is, a faith that has not been tested isn't faith. If we have never had an if-God-doesn't-intervene moment, we are just singing in the day, reading the notes on the page just as we're supposed to. But what happens to those who were like me, those of you listening right now, when the darkness comes, when you can no longer see the music, when the spotlight isn't directly on you, will what you possess be enough to weather through the night? Jesus warned his disciples of a time when he would no longer be with them. He warned them of a time when the night would come. In John 13, we find one of the most famous stories in all of Scripture. It's that of the Last Supper. Jesus has just washed his disciples' feet and has told them that one of them will betray him. And as he continues talking with Peter and the rest of the disciples, he tells Peter, the one who said he would go with him even unto death, he tells Peter that he would deny him. This was a shock to them all. He had just told them that their daylight was coming to an end. Night was about to begin for those who had followed him every day for the past three to three and a half years. And as the shock of what the Lord has just told them is coming to bear on their minds, the conversation continues in chapter 14. All right, now when the Bible was written, it did not have chapters and verses. It was written in letter form. Chapter and verse was not added until much, much later. For those of you who think that even the chapters and verses are inspired, they are not. But they are a good tool. But one of the worst chapter divides in all the Bible is the divide between John 13 and John 14 because it is the exact same conversation. And Jesus tells them in the first few verses of John 14, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, I read that out of the King James, because that's my preferred translation, but some of you with other translations 
may read, instead of it saying mansions, it may say that there are many rooms or many dwelling places, which is what the Greek words mean. Um, but now many people believe this passage to describe heaven because of the usage of the word mansions. But if I could put this in a more modern terminology, in a more modern verbiage, here's what Jesus is telling his disciples. Don't lose heart. You believe in God, also believe in me. There is room in my Father's house, and if it weren't true, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you, a way to come into my Father's house, and since I'm going to prepare a place, I will come again and receive you, that where I am, there you will be as well. Jesus is telling his disciples about the place he must go and prepare, about what he must do to make a way for them to be reunited. This passage isn't as much about heaven as it is about the cross. They have just been told that their world is ending. This man who has calmed the storms, given sight to the blind, seen the lame walk, and the dumb speak is leaving them. What are they going to do? Just imagine the hopelessness that came into their minds at this supper. The long dark that they had been told of was finally here. And it's no doubt that Jesus seen this terror creeping into their souls. He's told his disciples for years, night is coming. And that grave reality is about to be realized. He will be betrayed, denied, and killed. The light of the world that they have followed for these years that has given their life purpose is about to go dark, if only for a time. He then tells them not to lose heart and that he is going to prepare a place for them. Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know the way to where you are going. And he tells Thomas and the others that he is the way. And then right in the middle, of the distraught confusion, he says some of the most beautiful words in all of the Bible. In John 14, starting in verse 16, he says, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. And then in John 14, 26, he says, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. They are not going to be left as orphans. They are going to be comforted. All this time they had been singing in the day, watching the Savior as he performed his miracles, fed multitudes, and turned water into wine. But now night is falling, and nothing short of the power of God coming to rest on them will let them sing in the night. As Spurgeon said, songs in the night only come from God. This is why knowing beyond any doubt that you are born again, that you are converted, is so important. You can fake it in front of church folk, but you can't fake it when times get hard. 
You can't fake it when the night falls and all hell breaks loose. When the glass house you live in comes crashing down around you and the friends you thought would stand by your side are nowhere to be seen. I've been there. I have lived this reality and I know firsthand just how difficult trying to find the way alone is. I have been in that dark cave like Elijah was, ready to end it all, when all of a sudden the comforter, the paraclete, would come alongside and whisper peace to my mind, heart, and soul. The word comforter in John 14 means one who comes alongside. He's the one who travels the lonely roads of night with us, who lets us know in his own way that everything will be all right. He is the guiding hand that leads us beside still waters and in the paths of righteousness, as David said. Now, if we were to look at this from another perspective, in 1 Peter chapter 4, we find another example of the Spirit's comfort, but it's from a different angle. Now, I'm going to read this out of the Amplified Bible. I know a lot of people don't like it, but in this particular passage, I think that it is excellent. Peter says this, he said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal or fiery trial which is taking place to test the quality of your faith as though something strange or unusual were happening to you. Insofar as you are sharing Christ's sufferings, keep on rejoicing so that when His glory, filled with His radiance and splendor, is revealed, you may rejoice with great joy. If you are insulted and reviled, for bearing the name of Christ, you are blessed because you are happy and have life-giving joy and comfort in God's salvation regardless of your circumstance because the Spirit of glory and of God is resting on you and indwelling you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or any sort of criminal in response to this persecution or as a troublesome meddler interfering in the affairs of others. If anyone suffers ill treatment as a Christian because of their belief, they are not to be ashamed, but, to glorify, but they are to glorify God because He is considered worthy to suffer in His name. Now Peter begins by saying to not be surprised when the fiery ordeals or trials of life come to us as if something odd or strange is happening. His usage of the word fiery is very interesting. The word he uses is the same word used when describing the refinement of precious metals like silver and gold. It heralds back to the passage where the prophet Malachi said, The Lord sits as a refiner and purifier of silver. Now when I found this out, that this word fiery was referencing the refinement of precious metals, I went back and looked at what ancient silversmithing entailed, Bronze Age silversmithing, and I found something beautiful. Firstly, the precious metals, just as today, had to be mined. All right, well then they had to be washed to get loose dirt and other undesirable material off. After it was washed, it went into a smelting pot, and the smelting pot went into a forge or a crucible to be melted down. Now, this was done in small, controllable batches, so none of the silver would be wasted. 
watched constantly under the skilled, watchful eye of the silversmith the entire time. This brings us to the next step in the process and in what Peter says. Peter goes on to say that when we are hated for the name of Christ, that we should be happy and rejoice, and even that we are blessed when we're hated and reviled for bearing the name of Christ. Then he describes not only how, but why we are blessed. He said it is because the Spirit of God is resting on us. This brings us back to the silversmith. When the silver became molten and all of the impurities had risen to the top, the smith would lift the smelting pot out of the fire and blow on the top of the molten metal inside. This caused the impurities to oxidize and release from the silver, and they could then be lifted off, and none of the silver would be taken with it. When these fiery trials come. It is for our betterment. Purifying flame causes our impurities to rise to the surface. We bear them to the face of God, and as the Spirit moves over us, the impurities come off. No wonder Spurgeon said what he did. A song that is sung in the night can and will only come from God because we cannot muster such a thing of ourselves. Take heart, suffering saints. Night may have fallen, yes, but the Comforter is still there. Hold on and wait for the breath of heaven to blow. Think back to Daniel chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into the fiery furnace. Those of you who are familiar with the story, you know all about it. Infuriated King Nebuchadnezzar, he has them cast into this burning, fiery furnace. The Bible says that he commanded them to be bound hand and foot in their coats and in their cloaks and cast into this blazing, fiery furnace that he had had heated seven times hotter than what it was normally. It was so hot that it killed the men that were cast, that cast them into the fiery furnace. A few moments pass, and King Nebuchadnezzar looks over into the blazing fire, and what he sees scares him to death. He calls for his men, and he says, Did we not throw three men bound into the midst of the fiery furnace? And they answer him, Yes, King, we did. And he says, Well, lo, I see four men loose, walking around, and the fourth man is likened unto the Son of God. Notice that he said that they were cast in, bound, hand and foot. The midst of the fire are loose and walking around, and there is someone else in the fire with them. Friend, when we go through the fiery trials of life, the Comforter comes alongside us, and those things that had us bound, those things that are keeping us from doing what we should do for God and what we would do for God, the Comforter comes by as the wind of heaven blows into the fire where we are. Bonds are loose. We're able, as the Hebrew children were, Kenezer says, loose and walking around, leaping and praising God. There was ever a time that we needed comforter to come it is in the day we live that's about all the time we have for this episode and i want to thank you for listening and if you haven't already please go to your favorite podcast app and give us a follow and a review um, i would greatly appreciate that 
If you would like to reach out to me, email theforgottensola at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you with any comments, critiques, or questions. Um, they are all be welcome, but I pray this episode has been a help in some way. I know it helped me to share it with you. It helped me as I studied this. Um, but until next time, may God bless you.